0: Welcome to New Books in European Studies. I'm Tim Jones, and my guest today is Richard Pomfret, author of The Road to Monetary Union, published in March by Cambridge University Press. This is the first in its new series of Cambridge Elements on the economics of European integration, edited by Naro Campos. Richard Pomfret is Professor of Economics at the University of Adelaide, and was until last year the Jean Monnet Chair in the Economics of European Integration. Before moving to Australia in 1992, he was a professor at Johns Hopkins in Washington, Bologna, and Nanjing. A graduate of the Universities of Reading and East Anglia, Professor Pomfret obtained his PhD from Simon Fraser University in Vancouver and is the author of 19 books so far. Richard, welcome to the podcast.
1: Ah, thank you, Tim. Thank you for the introduction and also for inviting me to join you today.
0: Oh, you're welcome. Um can we begin by explaining what Cambridge Elements are and how you came to write this uh, series opener?
1: Um, Cambridge Elements are, are short studies. They're aiming about fifty pages, um, looking at different issues to do with um, European integration, and and for me this was a, an interesting opportunity because I've had this um, concerns about the debate about monetary unification. Um, but, you know, people tend to think it's either a good thing or a bad thing, but there's not been much real analysis of why it happened. And I hope to sort of deal with that in a way that would be readable to you know to the general public, really.
0: Yeah, I, I saw an interview with uh, uh Professor Campos and he, he talked about how the idea was that the these were meant to be longer than journal articles but shorter than books, they could be updated every year and, and they were Interactive. Um, I mean, obviously, I, I've only seen it in in its short book form. Does it do more than that?
1: No, no. That, that's how it is. What you see is what you get, Tim. Um, so it's about fifty pages long. Um, I hope the style is supposed to be readable. There are a few um, graphs and tables, but it's not, you know, really, you know, technically very very heavy on technical material. Um, and obviously, it's a topic that, that is evolving. Um, but I was hoping it would contribute to. Having some understanding of why the euro came into being um, and why it came into being when it did, you know, there was this um, uh, attempt in the 1970s at monetary union was an ignominious failure, um, and yet in the 1990s it it worked. And um, expectations that it it was bound to fail have not really been borne out with 20 years of the euro. Its um, memberships expanded.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, I mean, we'll get we'll get to the book. So you you, you say. I mean, it's 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 a short historical narrative from the Werner report to today, but it's I mean, there's a couple of themes in it, but probably the uh, the overriding theme is this idea, uh, uh, as you say, quote, economics is the long run driver in, of integration, and politics often determined the timing of the next step, but it's not determined the direction of change. I, is it right to see that really as as one of the key themes? Yes, exactly. <laughs> and i mean i think a lot of people see the politics as quite determinative is 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 you know looking for example at um, the impact of german unification or uh, um, you know the the the, imp- the the political impact of the 1992 uh, economic crisis but that seems to be something that you're challenging could, could you talk us through that
1: yeah i mean these these events are obviously important in driving the process along um but to me the you know, when you talk about the importance of, say, Roy Jenkins in the late 70s or Jacques Delors in the, in the, the late 1980s, you know, I mean they weren't really determined. They were pressing harder on the accelerator rather than actually determining a, a, a new direction or determining the direction. But I think one of the, the, the problems we have is that um, you know media commentary, you're typically focused on what's happening now. So you know, things like crises um, get the headlines but long term trends um, are much harder to report to, uh, on, and I think the long term trends we 're talking about here are the, you know the deeper integration of the EU, which is something you know that goes on from you know 1957 to, to today you know that 's harder to report on, but it 's definitely happening you know what 's changing in this debate about monetary union is the European communities of 1970 are quite a different animal I think from the European communities of 2000 so I'm trying to um, give some idea of of these long run changes that are mainly economics driven, I mean obviously they have to have support of national governments but I think these are economics driven and they're not as dramatic as an all night summit where where you see this sort of mano a mano conflict between between leaders Um, but, but that they are the driver, in, in my view. And that's what I wanted to put across in, the, in this book.
0: Yeah, and, and you, make, you make a very interesting point, actually. I mean, I think if we think of the, think of the economics, we think of things like uh, the, the ERM crisis and so on. But you make this much longer point about global value chains, uh, how important they've become since the original plans were made for monetary union and you say this could explain why a larger currency domain may be more popular now. Is the idea there that as a, as part of a single market with a single currency, you can tap into more than one part of, of a value chain? Is, is that the argument you're making?
1: Um, yeah. I, think, I mean, the, the argument is that if you want to have a, a value chain that crosses national borders and takes advantage of firms with different capabilities in different countries – Doing different tasks, you really want to minimize the the costs of crossing the borders, the costs of um, moving from one currency domain to another um, and, and the currency is part of that i mean one reason why when we set up value chains within the european union you know, it's Clearly, the the two thousand and four enlargement is a, a big step because you have very different countries coming in with you know, different skill baskets, different wage rates. But which is the country that benefited most from that? To me, it's Slovakia. Why Slovakia? Mm. Well, one of the reasons is some of it's to do with distance and closeness to Germany. But one of the reasons is Slovakia adopted the euro. It makes it much easier for for Volkswagen to work out you know which steps in the process of producing a golf you do in slovakia which you do in germany which you do in other parts of the euro zone it's not the only thing that matters but it is part of this um, facilitating trade across borders and simplifying those calculations
0: mm-hmm. I, I mean you're you're very careful not well I, I assume you're very careful not to use the b word uh brexit in in, in this book but is the logic from what you're saying there that you would expect there to be a uh, negative impact on the British economy from um, not, not only being outside the currency area but being outside the single market in, in this
1: respect? Uh, yes, I think the answer is, that it is, is definitely yes. And how big the cost is uh, and whether it offsets the benefits that the Brexiteers would see in other areas from, from Brexit that's a different matter. But I think already, I mean, even before Brexit, I know it, this was a a cost of not being in the, in the euro um I, I'm trying to be very careful with some of these things, to particularly do with value chains. I mean, it's not unicausal. I mean, why you um, choose a different location for a different part of the production process depends upon many, many things. Um, so this is just one of the many things.
0: Yeah. And one of the – I mean, early on in the book, you um, – you talk us through optimal currency area theory, um, and, and in fact, at the end of the book, you, you conclude that one of the casualties of Europe, Europe's currency union should be optimal currency area theory. Can you talk us through that argument?
1: Yeah, I mean, the optimal currency area theory, the underlying argument, I think mean, it's fairly straightforward. It's that uh, you've got microeconomic benefits of um, having a single currency. It makes transactions easier. You, know, you can look across prices. You don't have to worry about the exchange rate change and so on. So there are clearly benefits. If we had a world currency, things would be simpler um, mm-hmm. in terms of trading and so on. On the other hand, if you have a national currency, you have these macroeconomic benefits. So you've got additional policy tools that you can use. You can devalue your currency. You can have an independent monetary policy and so on. And so ultra-currency area, we was saying, well, there's a trade-off between these things. If you're a very small country, you don't have very much policy, independence, so you really don't really need to have your own currency, and that would be Monaco or Timor-Leste. Um, on the other hand, if you're a larger country, you're giving away a lot if you don't have your your own currency and the ability to pursue your own monetary policy. And we see that, I think, very clearly in the crises of the 1970s. The big EU countries didn't want to keep going along the process of having fixed exchange rates and monetary union when faced with the stagflation after the first oil crisis. So Britain and Italy wanted to deal with unemployment. Germany wanted to deal with inflation. You can't deal with those things simultaneously if you have, say, a common monetary policy. So you know, I think we can see that that kind of conflict, that kind of choice, that the trade-off between these two things and why larger countries keep their own, uh, tend to keep their own currency and so on. What I think is the problem when we look at, um, at European monetary integration is there's this dramatic change between the 1970s and the 1990s. so to me there's something else is driving the decision um, to go to proceed with monetary union in in the 1990s and to me the, the part of this is the change towards global value chains you mentioned, but also that the European Union is becoming much more integrated. It's really difficult to have common policies if you've got each part of the union with different currencies that whose value might change during the year, um, mm-hmm. and that to me was the, the the real driver. It's when you disagree on common policies, um, then you 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 want to have less likely to have common currency. But if you have common policies, you really want to have a common currency, and we see this very clearly in. You know, the United States or Canada, Australia, Germany, Italy, when they unify, they have a single currency dealing with the whole federation. If you don't agree on the common policies, as in the the ruble zone after 1991, then you issue national currencies. So I think it's much more about this uh, agreement on policies is is what's driving it. The transactions cost of making national policies get to be much higher if you've got individual currencies. If you want to have common policies, as the EU now has in the much more in the in the two thousands than in the nineteen eighties. Then it really is a much greater pressure to have a single currency.
0: Yeah, and, and yet it is quite it, it, it's a it's a strange contradiction at play as as you point out. You say uh, public satisfaction may explain why euro sceptical populist parties in Greece or Italy backed off from implementing euro exit once in power and as you say that there is there there's is this agreement on, on common policies that is that seems to be driving this integration and, and yet constantly um, eu member states seem to be at odds on many of these policies it 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 is this this constant uh, the two-way pressure
1: yeah but i think that's kind of the nature of being in a federation a bit tim i mean I, I don't want to downplay it completely but yeah, if you think of you know the disagreements between red and blue states in the united states yeah. i mean they're, they're yeah, huge but there's there's no pressure that um, you, you know that the republican states should have a different currency to the the democratic states uh yes I think, well, yeah, <laughs> uh, <laughs> there is a, a, a really strong pressure. I mean, what really strikes me is there are no countries that I know of that have more than one official currency. You know, Once you've got nation, the nation state established or the federation established, you want a common currency. And I think it's this difficulty of make, which the the optimum you know, currency argument talks about the transactions costs of the private sector. That's the benefit, you know, you have lower transactions costs with common currency. But I think it's the transactions cost in the public sector. It's what's really important in terms of you know making policies.
0: Yes, uh, it's well. Let's let, let's come to what you were just saying about about the U.S. You you, you say that um, academic criticism primarily comes from U.S. economists and 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 you, and you do make the point you just made there that ironically uh from a 2020 perspective the description of squabbling regions and political extremism seems more appropriate to the us currency zone um than than to the uh, than to the eurozone um the one thing they do have and you do point this out in the book which seems to be a good sort of pressure cooker is that they that they have this assumption you can have sovereign defaults, you know, at the state level or even at the city level, but there's never a question about giving up the dollar, and this, until now, has been a uh, a design fault with the with the eurozone and and remains so. Actually, mm-hmm. can you talk us through that argument?
1: I mean, I think, I mean, clearly, are, were, still are design faults in, in the Eurozone um, in terms of your know, financial regulations, banking regulations. But if we think back to the United States or Canada or Australia, it took a, a long while after US independence or Canadian um, Confederation or Australian, it took a long while to establish a, a, um, mm. a financial system, a monetary system. You know, a, a huge. Um, Debates and, and com- political conflicts in the United States, you know, in the 1820s about um, the financial system. So, yeah, ideally you want to move for, to the to the end game straight away, but that's just not how things work. You know? so I think some of the chaos we've had about having um, you know deposit insurance that's common across the um, the eurozone, you know, are, are going to take time time to sort out. But I think it, we're going that way. I mean, it's, I think mean, it's quite impressive and quite important how. Quickly, the agreement was reached on, say, the the, the bailouts in COVID, not bailouts, um, the assistance in COVID, that it would be at the mm. EU level, at the Eurozone level, and there would be um, you know, Eurozone instruments. Um, I think that tells us we, that we've moved quite a long way on this, or the EU has moved quite a long way on this.
0: Yes I no I I completely agree with you but you you do make this point and I th- I do think it's the right one that the a really critical missing element has been this um a formal debt restructuring mechanism yeah. so e- even if it's never used you need to know it's there in order to make this um in order to take away this assumption that if a country runs into difficulty it it, it has to leave has uh, to leave yeah. the currency area that's right
1: um I, no, I completely agree with you, Tim. I mean, it's not unique to the EU. I mean, Canada has this issue with New Brunswick over the last few years. Um, you know, it, it's not really clear. There is no guarantee of, of bailout, but there is an assumption that there will be a bailout. How, how valid is that? You know, you, you only get tested when you ha- have a crisis. Um, in many ways, to me, that the way they, that the Greek crisis was managed, it was very messy and it lasted almost a decade. Wasn't actually that bad. I mean, a lot of people lost out. Yeah, um, mm. it's very unequal. The effect on people in Greece. I'm you know, not trying to down, downplay that. Um, but it also was resolved, and there really was no serious. There was never no, no moment when you seriously thought Greece was going to leave the eurozone. I think that was also very impressive.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, what was so interesting during that crisis was that there, there was a, a, a poll. That consistently showed seventy thirty support for the euro. I mean, consistently, right during yeah. the worst of times, uh, which, and it seemed, seemed yeah. to be ignored by everybody.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, which to me showed a lot of um, of sense on the part of uh, the average Greek person. I mean, they're not blaming the euro; they're blaming you know the blame was their own governments for the mm. twenty years before the crisis broke out. Um,
0: yeah, yeah. Your, your section on your section on Greece actually is is unusual in, in that it presents both sides. So you, yes, you make, you make that point. For example, that there seem to be really these two uh, uh, failings that, on, on the EU side: the failing of surveillance, so that the mismatch of reported deficit data and public borrowing, and the rising nominal debt stock. And then the and then the other the other side was and, and you you. You uh, ally it to what happened in Latin America in the eighties. This th- this delay that was allowed for the German and especially the French banks to offload their their Greek bonds, so the burden was largely felt by domestic Greek creditors. Do you do you think do you think underlying this was a a failure of imagination uh, and uh, and and perhaps a a wish to choose the path of short term political ex- expediency, a bit like some of these governments, including the British government, to be fair, have done on pandemic management. You hope if you deal with the issue that's right in front of you now, the problem later will sort of resolve itself.
1: Uh, yes, definitely. Um, I mean, to me, it's a big concern, currently. I mean, how many governments, um, are, I think, will we'll just spend money, will fund it by borrowing, and in the future will look after itself. Yeah, so uh, I and also, I mean, I think it, it is fairly clear in the Greek crisis, you know, the the German and the French and the Dutch banks that um, were sort of, you know, mocking the the UK banks, for example, the Spanish banks for the problems they'd got into in two thousand and seven, two thousand and eight, and they were making these safe loans to a, a government. Um, you know, they did take a haircut; they they paid a price as well. You know, so you know the people that made bad decisions did suffer and the the really unequal thing to me in the greek crisis was that um you know the richer people who benefited you know richer greeks who benefited were able to get the money out of the country you know and for a while they were the main purchasers of real estate in london um whereas you know when the things fell apart it was uh, you know the poorer people who suffered so you know it was definitely not a a good thing to have gone through. But I still think the, the way it was sorted out, it was very similar to the Global Debt crisis, in 1982. I mean, it took 10 years to sort out the Brazilian debt then, which is pretty much really, exactly what happened
0: in, in Europe. Do, do you think they've done a bad job of selling what they did in Greece? Um, you know, because there, there are plenty of books out from people like uh, Yanis Varoufakis mm. and so on yeah. giving, <laughs> giving that side. But the European side – well, the Greeks are European – but, the, but the, the creditor side has um, – has really been quite badly marketed.
1: Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, I think the governments and and the ECB. Uh, although, I mean, Draghi did get a bit of like hero status from it, and he's now <laughs> Prime Minister of Italy, so he's getting credit for it. I mean, I think I, I think he did. He was he was good. Um, yeah, I think on the whole that the the EU governments handled it, you yeah, know, reasonably well given the magnitude of the problem uh, and the. Uh, you know the the, thing, the issues that were being raised of, of you know who was suffering and so on. Um, it was never going to have a a, a good outcome, but I don't, mm. I don't think it was bad. I mean, you know, the real concern was still looking at you know what's going to happen with, for example, Italy, which has an even larger debt.
0: Yes. Yeah. yeah well, I, I, you say um, you say we'll only find out how effective the the, the, the changes that have been made to the. Uh, um to to the but, uh, joint budget budgetary management side uh, we will only find out what it's like when when, when we're facing the next crisis and the next crisis yeah. <laughs> the next crisis is almost is almost certain to, to be italy and, and and it's going to be on a far grander scale Do, do you how confident uh, are you that this will that this will be well managed we looked at raggy
1: don't we um <laughs> I mean, Italy has always though, been, I think, uh, I've got to be careful what I say here a bit, but Italy has, has always been a bit of an issue in Europe. I mean, it has this image, I think, particularly in Northern Europe, of being, you know, Southern Europeans. And yet they've been a pretty good European country, pretty well managed. They've had, you know, economically things went downhill in the 1990s and 2000s. Um, but it's always been reasonably well managed, much better managed, I think, than, say, the British press gives it credit for. Um, mm-hmm. So, I have a very small degree of confidence in Italy, but it you know there there are concerns. There are concerns about the size of the external debt. There are concerns that um, productivity seems really stubborn about improving, and that we do have populist parties in the wings. So yeah it's much easier to predict about the past, isn't it tim?
0: Yes well I'd say what actually one of the things they that that is potentially an advantage now compared to the past is that is that a lot of the debt is now domestically held yeah so if you if you had you know if they lost market access you could you could potentially have a scenario where you could um you you, you know you could have burden sharing you could have uh, a haircut taken by by rich. Italians and and, and transfer of wealth between the between the public and the private sector.
1: Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah Wouldn't be very popular though, I think.
0: Yeah
1: (laughs) (laughs) I mean debt crises are always going to involve losers. I mean, this is the the basic thing Yeah And it's how you allocate that
0: Yes Yeah Um, You talk about I mean there there is I think there's always an assumption uh, in this discussion, that that a currency union must have on the other side a US-style fiscal union and a large macroeconom- macroeconomic stabilizing function. Um, uh, but even the scale of last year's crisis failed to deliver that. I mean, the 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 um, uh, the, the next generation EU budgetary package is is time limited and and limited in, in volume. It, it does suggest that there is a real sort of political. Permanent political roadblock to this idea of a fiscal union. So, do you think the Eurozone should instead consider a, an alternative approach based maybe on much tighter coordination of policy plus insurance schemes plus use of the market and a default mechanism? Or, or, or is this, do you think the, the general literature is correct that this is a, an unsustainable long term model?
1: Yeah, I don't think it's unsustainable. I mean, I do think, what you just said, there are are many different directions to go. I mean, in some sense, I think the... The worst section of my book is some pages about the aftermath, which turns into a a catalogue of kind of different measures being adopted. And yet I think that is the reality. You have lots of of different things that are are mitigating the the potential problems. Um, I think the move towards um, a six-year budget in the European Union, we're we're on a second part of what version of that now um, i think mean that that's a, a great innovation it takes away these kind of every year having these all-night sessions debating the the annual budget um so i think that's a, a big step towards um making things a, a little bit more more stable i think that the problem of trying to make fiscal rules is that you know they, it's hard to know what happens when they get broken you know the old um, you know um three percent budget deficit 60 percent um, debt thing you know in both france and germany broke through those ceilings, nothing happened, which undermines the the, the principle of the thing. Um, so I'm not sure how good that is beyond being a, a rough guideline. But I think a lot of the things that are that, being done, particularly with, um, you, know, you know, restructure, um, what what to do with, with banks, sort of how you monitor them and what you do when they're, when, systemically important banks go under. They have an agreement on that, moving towards um, common rules on, on um, deposit insurance. I think these are, are all good parts. I mean, it's the difficulty, obviously, is going to be you You can't tell governments how to run their, their own national budget in a great deal of detail. Um, but, you know, that that's also happens quite a bit in the United States when we go back to that. I mean, you know, California's fiscal um Management is quite different to Texans, for example.
0: Yeah, actually, you make that a very nice point about uh, Puerto Rico being administered by a board. Mm-hmm. And I know um, when Detroit um, uh, went, out of, uh, went bankrupt, it was run yeah. by an administrator for several years and actually turned, turned the city around. Um the Germans tried something a little bit like this in 2015 with the Greeks. Yeah. the The, fi- the final agreement was to set up this this fund that would be run externally um, uh, and would essentially bring the bulk of, uh, of privatizable assets into the fund. And you know, it, it would be like the Troy hand in effect, was it in yeah. Germany? Yeah. yeah. And, and and then it got shelved because it was it was the, the moment the crisis had gone. People saw it politically as unworkable. But it does seem to be the only way you, something like that is the only way you can make a sovereign uh, uh, default mechanism work. Can, can you think of any other way that, that, that it could work?
1: No, I mean, I, I, where we stand now, it's got to be a fairly light hand. I mean, maybe something like IMF surveillance. It's a, a light hand, but without real, uh, it's more peer pressure than a real enforcement mechanism. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, we still have this clearly still have this balance in the European Union between it being a you know union of, of nation states and um, being something moving towards deeper integration. I think that's the fundamental issue: is how how slowly that movement towards deeper integration takes place. Mm.
0: And just in the, in, the, in the in the short term, well, it's, it's short and potentially long, um, by the end of the pandemic, the ECB will have expanded its balance sheet by. Getting on for two trillion euros to allow governments to loosen fiscal policy.
1: Right.
0: Uh, this was the only only way to get this done quickly. Do you? Do you? Are you one of these people who think this should stay on the ECB balance sheet essentially permanently, or how should this be resolved? Do you think?
1: Um, don't have a clear answer to that one, Tim. Um, I. I mean, I, I am worried about some of the, these. um your mission rate mission reached by, by the ecb um, i'm worried about we mentioned this earlier about the, the extent to which um, national governments uh, and to some extent the the commission is sort of taking on um, burdens which will involve potential future debt obligations um yeah i don't think it's out of hand to put it that way i'm a bit sort of not completely concerned about it but a little bit worried <laughs> Mm. Poor answer. Mm. <laughs> um, you t- you t- sorry,
0: yeah, I was springing on you there. So, um, to to finish as I do with all my guests, I've asked you to choose a book, any book to recommend to listeners. Uh, and I believe you've chosen two. What, what have you got for us?
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, the two books, it's, well, you, your original request, two books I'd read recently. And one I've just finished reading, and it's um, by Financial Times author, um, Tom Burgess. It's called Kleptopia, which I thought was a really. Interesting account. We all know a lot about money laundering, um, and it's I but with no real data on money laundering, it's just, um, quite an interesting attempt to to trace what's happened. I work a lot on Central Asia, so his main characters are coming from Kazakhstan, but they, you know, it's going through London, it's going through Switzerland, it's going through New York. I quite like the the way he it says um, subtitle: "How dirty money is coming the world." Um, a description of, of how this is happening, and it was relevant to to what happened in Greece. I mean, the rich people got their money out of Greece. Um, and that's part of the problem um, the other book I've, I've just finished reading which I really liked and I, I'm, I'm obviously behind the crowd on this is by its German author Jenny Erpenbeck um, a, a novel called Visitation which is, it's a, a novella really um, really I thought a great um, story with the background of you know, what happened basically in the, the, the location is East Germany near Berlin what's happened over the last hundred years there which is. I think quite an eye opener. I think, particularly somebody like myself, brought up in the UK, where we have this very different view of um, these big issues of the 20th century than people from Germany or France. And that, to me, underlies partly why the view of the European Union has been very different in, in Britain and in the um, the original six signatories, where it's all about um, peace in Europe. Whereas, I think from the beginning, Britain it was more more an economic bargain. We'll do this thing, which will make trade a bit easier. And I thought Jenny Eppenbeck's book really brought that out, uh, just how dramatic the changes were in Germany.
0: Okay. Okay. Well, thank you. Um, Today, I've been talking to Richard Pomfret about his Road to Monetary Union, published in March by Cambridge University Press, as the first in a series of Cambridge elements on the economics of European integration. Richard, thanks again for coming on.
1: Thank you, Tim. Good to talk to you.